Let's take our Bibles again and return to the Gospel of Luke this morning. We are studying the Gospel of Luke week by week. We come this morning to chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of all the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Our Father and our God, this is indeed your word. Open it to us today for Christ's sake. In 2 Samuel 23, we read of an event which occurred when King David was fighting against the Philistines. That was happening all the time, so it doesn't really narrow it down very much. But this is part of David's battles. Uh, David and his men were camped at the cave of Adullam. The Philistines had made their stronghold nearby in Bethlehem, David's hometown. And as the military standoff continued, David grew nostalgic for his home for the sights and sounds that he knew so well, which was now in enemy-occupied territory. And you read in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 23 that David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. It's just an offhand remark. Just spoken in a moment of combination, I would guess, of frustration that the enemy had his, his hometown and nostalgia. But David was the king, and so word spread quickly through his ranks. The king wants a drink of water from that well that is by the gate. And since the city was then under enemy control, it sounded like an absurd Request, yet there were three warriors in that camp for whom the king's wish was their command. 
And so as soon as they heard what David wanted, we read that the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. They staged a commando operation to get some water for David. Now, of course, David never intended that. David would not have put his men's lives at risk so that he could get a drink of water from a particular well. He never intended anyone to treat what he had said as a a royal command. It was simply an idle wish. In fact, he was so moved by what his men had done that he refused to drink the water. He poured it out on the ground as an offering to God. But the story shows the, the supreme authority of a word spoken by God's anointed king. Particularly when it is overheard by those who loved him and were loyal to him. Jesus speaks with the same royal authority. We see that authority in the story of the Roman centurion here in Luke chapter 7. The story shows the dying and desperate need of lost humanity. It shows the contrast between apparent worthiness and the actual unworthiness of a person who has seemed to live a good life. The first thing that jumped out at me as I was reading through this passage over and over this week is that the elders of the Jews whom this centurion recruited to go and make this request of Jesus, they portrayed him as an extremely worthy man. And yet when the man speaks about himself, what does he say? I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy for you even to come under my roof. Well, the story begins with a a man in desperate need. And of course, when we see that right away, we can start expanding this story beyond the details of the story itself, the centurion and and Jesus there and the elders of the, the, the Jews. When we understand desperate need in the context of Jesus, it's not too difficult to see ourselves there and the rest of the world. Because because the world stands in desperate need, and there's only one person who can meet that need, and that is Jesus. So you already know exactly where this sermon is going. It's where the scripture wants us to take it. Because that's the point. What this shows us is that the only basis for salvation is coming to Jesus Christ in the knowledge that we have nothing to offer him. We have nothing that we can bring to him by which we can say, I'm worthy. Do what I ask you because I'm worthy. No, it's just the opposite. And so the story begins with a man in desperate need. Jesus has just finished preaching his sermon on the plain, you'll remember. And we're told that when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. 
and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him, that is, the slave was highly regarded by the centurion, he was sick and about to die. Now remember who's writing this gospel, it's Luke. Luke is a physician. As a physician, ordinarily, we would expect Luke to tell us more about the man's condition, give us a little more medical detail, some kind of diagnosis, perhaps. But this time, all he does is mention the man's prognosis. The situation is critical. The centurion's servant has a sickness that is unto death. And unless God intervenes, he would surely die. Doubtless, the people who cared for him could see the telltale signs of that. If you've been around people who are coming close to the end, you can tell. You know that. There is this detachment. There is a desperate struggle for every last breath. Here we're being told that the death watch has begun. The servant's plight is a reminder of our own mortality. Sooner or later, his situation is going to be our situation. Because we are all under the death sentence. Because we are human beings. And because we are sinners. And because when Adam died, we all died. Spiritually and physically. And so, this is the need behind every other need. One day we are going to die, and unless there is some way for us to gain life, we will suffer without God for all eternity. There will be not only physical life, physical death rather, but ongoing eternal, spiritual death. It is something most people try to avoid thinking about. It's not pleasant, but we can never escape it entirely. The unavoidable reality is that someday we are all going to die. And then what? One who admitted that he was afraid to die was George Steinbrenner, if you'll remember old George owner of the New York Yankees for quite some time. It was Steinbrenner who once said, I will never have a heart attack. I give them. (laughs) And yet, 2004 article, he poignantly described his growing fear of his own mortality. He had collapsed at someone else's funeral If that doesn't make you think about your mortality, I don't know what will. And he said, it makes you think. You're that close, and you wonder if you're all right. Well, he had no assurance that he was. He wondered if he would be all right, but he did not know for sure, and that's the doubt that many people share, of course. Death confronts us as nothing else does with our insignificance and our weakness and our regrets and our remorse, and it exposes any folly that we may have held on to in regard to our own pretensions to greatness. Even when we attempt to face death with courage, we never 
succeed in finally overcoming it. Death always wins in that sense. It dominates us until we at last go to receive the wages of sin. This is what the centurion's servant was up against, humanity's last and greatest enemy, death. But this servant, though he was a servant, was not facing it alone and unloved. He had a master who cared for him, which is a very strange thing. That that just strikes us as being unusual. Scripture says that the servant was highly regarded, literally highly valued. Now that may refer to his usefulness as a servant, but I think we all hope that it's more than that. That there is this personal Affection that the master has for his servant. The word can also mean that he was precious in the sight of his master. He was loved. The centurion was a a great-hearted man. He had good affections. He loved his servant, wanted to do whatever he could to help him. We know what kind of man he was, even if that idea of highly regarding his servant is still a little bit cloudy. We understand the kind of man he was from what he had done in regard to the Jews and how well they spoke of him. And so I think that kind of pushes us in the direction that he had a personal affection for this servant. He was that kind of man, but what could he do? He desperately wanted to help the servant, Presumably, he had tried everything that he could think of, but there seemed to be nothing that would help. And again, this is a situation that we all encounter. We encounter it medically when the doctors finally say we've tried everything and there's just nothing else we can do. We encounter it relationally when we don't know how to bring people back together into a relationship of peace any longer. We encounter it financially when someone close to us is in deep debt. We encounter it spiritually, surely, when we share the gospel. We want people to know Jesus Christ as we know him, and yet we get that blank stare in return. What do you do when there is nothing else that you can do for someone that you love? The thing to do is to do what the centurion did, to ask Jesus for help. He had heard about the power of Jesus to perform miracles, and he comes and he asks Jesus for help. I'm listening to myself preach this morning, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, this sounds a lot like a Sunday school lesson. This is what we tell our kids, this is kind of basic stuff, and it is. What do you do when you've got struggles and trouble and trial and there's nothing else left? You cry out to Jesus. Now, you should do that before there's nothing else left to do. That should be your first recourse, but better late than never. You cry out to Jesus. You do what the centurion did. 
He heard about Jesus, and he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And if you don't see grace there, I don't know how to show it to you. He hadn't even heard Jesus personally. He heard about Jesus. And yet God so moved in the centurion's heart that he determined to go and make contact with this man that he had heard about. The word used here for healing in this passage is a word that comes out of a group of words in the Greek, which is that word family that refers to salvation. Sozo is the primary term, if you're interested in things like that. And although here, heal is a proper translation, the word's etymology aptly describes the situation. The word has the idea of carrying someone safely through a dangerous ordeal, which is what the centurion was praying that Jesus would do for his servant. He had nowhere else to turn. He had no other recourse. Jesus was his only hope, and so he asked Jesus to work a saving cure that would rescue his friend from death. The centurion's plea is a physical request that points to a deeper spiritual reality. And it reminds us that everyone needs the saving work of Christ. Who else can deliver us from death? No one. Who else can carry us through our last ordeal and bring us safely to the other side? Only Jesus, the only hope for meeting the dying and desperate need of lost humanity, is that Jesus brings life. He takes those who are already dead, and he gives them new hearts. He raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life, and in doing so, gives us the promise that when these bodies finally fail... He'll raise them to new life as well. What a glorious hope. That is our glorious hope. Yes, that we live now in Christ, but that we will also live again for eternity. And it is these bodies which will be restored to us on the day of judgment and resurrection. These bodies which cease to function and turn to dust and lay in the ground or an urn. And God will raise these bodies up and he will glorify them. And these bodies will reunite with our spirits and we will live forever with the life giver Jesus Christ in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our hope. The centurion asked Jesus for help in true military fashion. He delegated. He passed the task on to others. Now, we understand as we 
read through this, why he did it, comes out later in the passage that he didn't think himself worthy to come in person. And so he sent, we're told, Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And so they go to speak on behalf, and their conversation with Jesus shows the contrast between the apparent worthiness and the actual unworthiness of a person who seems to live a good life. The Jewish elders loved this guy, and he loved them, and he had done a great deal for them. They told Jesus, the elders did when they came to him, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it is he who built us our synagogue. And so the elders asked Jesus to help on the basis of his good character. Which in itself is amazing when you consider that these are Jewish elders and he's a Roman centurion. If you were not aware, they didn't really get along very well. But there were among the Romans... Among the Gentiles, those who came to be called God-fearers. Those who had, to some degree or another, become impressed with the God of Israel and the faith of the Jews. And so they wouldn't go so far as to be circumcised and to become a Jew, but they did what they could to help this occupied people. And he apparently was one of those. They were, the elders were able to make a strong case that this man was worth helping. From a human point of view, there was every reason for Jesus to help this guy. The centurion had a tender heart for people in need, as we have seen. And he, he, he cared for people who were in his service. But he was also powerful. As an officer in the Roman army, he had roughly 100 men serving under his command. According to the historian Polybius, the Romans appointed to this rank only men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. When hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. That's the kind of man this was. And he was wealthy, apparently. Centurions were paid well in those days, especially if they had been successful on their various military campaigns, and this man had enough money himself to finance public building projects. And so he built a synagogue there in Capernaum. He was active in the support of God's people, despite the fact that he was part of a, an occupying force. He was loved by the Israelites, and he loved them and he built them this synagogue, and he built it well, by the way. And we know that because the foundations of that synagogue can still be seen in Capernaum today. As a general rule, the Romans, especially in the army, looked down on the Jews. But this man was a friend of Israel. That doesn't necessarily mean, as I said, that he worshipped with the Jews. But at least he loved God's people. And so they 
loved him. And here was the chance for the Jews to return the favor. The elders of the community, prominent social and religious leaders, went to Jesus on the centurion's behalf. Again, something very highly unusual, a group of Jews lobbying for a Roman soldier. Obviously, they thought this man was worthy of their support, and they wanted Jesus to recognize this. And so they come to him, in effect, and say, look, we really owe it to this guy. Can you help him out? Now, the elders obviously were thinking in terms of merit, They believed that someone who lived a good life was worthy to receive blessing. This is the way most people think. It's a basic presupposition of our fallen nature. We tend to think that people who do good things for others deserve to have good things done for them. Surely someone like the centurion who supports the synagogue and gives money to charity, he can expect... They were thinking he can expect Jesus to answer his request. Some people apply that same logic to salvation, to life after death. They believe that if they do good enough, they'll be entitled to get to heaven. This is the idea I grew up on. It's really the only thing that ever entered into my mind when I was a kid growing up. I'm going to live my life, and then, you know, going to stand before God, and he's going to have this big set of scales, and one side, good, the other side, bad, and depending on which way the scales went, that determines whether or not you get in. And then I heard the gospel, and that wasn't the gospel. Someone opened the Bible, and they told me what the Bible says, told me what Jesus himself says, told me what God says in his word, and I saw it there. And I realized how wrong I had been. I realized that the Bible says, if my good and my bad are going to be put on a scale... It's all going on the bad side. Everything I have ever said and done, because I've never done anything good. I've never done anything for the glory of God. Even those things that I think are good, the Bible tells me, are filthy rags. Even the best thing that I had ever done was worthy of death. Because it had nothing to do with God. It was all about me. Or all about someone else if I was feeling really good that day. But God was left out of the picture entirely. And he will not be left out of the picture. If I'm doing something that I consider to be good for anything other than God, then I'm committing idolatry. And it's no different than the ancient Israelites that we're reading about in Jeremiah. 
If good works could ever earn God's favor for anyone, this guy would have been it. But not even him. He had all the credentials anyone could ever hope to have, but that's not the way God operates. In our pride, we believe that we can be good enough for God. But who is ever good enough for God, especially when it comes to one's eternal destiny? God says, if you want to be good enough for me, the standard is perfection. Now let's talk. The Bible says that salvation is not about your works. It's about the grace of God. It's not what you've done. It's by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, there's the issue, right? If I'm focusing on what I have done, then I'm thinking that one day I'm going to be able to stand before God and say to God, I really appreciate everything you've done. I mean, your creation is beautiful. And you've blessed me in all kinds of ways. And, and, and you know, you've given me you know, your word. And, and all of that is really good. And somehow, I know, I really don't get it, but somehow Jesus fits into that too. Uh, so thanks for that. And here's all my contribution. Here's what I have to add to the equation. And that's the problem. Because God won't accept anything that I have done. Because all of this stuff that I think is so wonderful is, as Luther put it, a hill of dung. That's it. Because God does it all. Because God will not have anyone stand before him and boast. What God will have are men and women standing before him, falling upon their knees in gratitude for his grace, which was entirely undeserved. Salvation has to be the gift of God, otherwise we would take credit for ourselves. Besides, God's standard is, as I said, perfection. It's not enough to do as this good man did, humanly speaking, to make friends with the people of God. It's not enough to go to church, to give money to Christian causes, to get involved in some kind of ministry. What God requires is perfection, and none of us will reach it, because all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. Fallen short of that perfection. What God requires is perfect righteousness. And by that standard, no one is worthy. That's why Jesus had to come. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people who profess to be Christians. And then when I ask them about their understanding of the gospel, all they can talk about is how they haven't robbed a bank. They haven't killed anyone. They're better than their neighbor. They did something nice for someone. And because they claim to be Christians, I go on and I ask them, well, if that's what's happening here, 
where does Jesus fit in? If God's pleased with you because of the things you do, how does Jesus fit into the picture? And they have no idea. They've never thought about it before. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just fit into the picture. Jesus is the picture. Jesus is everything. Without him, we have nothing and we have no hope. Well, worthy or not, Jesus decided to help the centurion by healing his servant. With great compassion, he sets off with the elders of the people to find him. Verse 6 says that Jesus started on his way with them. And this is what we see all the way through the gospel. Jesus reaching out to help people who are in desperate need. People like us. I heard that gospel for the first time and it was a light bulb that went off. I knew it was true. And I knew for the first time my need. Because I was a pretty good kid. Yeah. Up to that point, at least, did what my parents told me. I was a little afraid of my dad, so that had something to do with it. But, you know, I didn't get into a lot of trouble. I was better than my brother. (laughs) But when the gospel was explained, then I understood. Not even close. Not even close. But Jesus, Jesus is able to save. The desire of his heart is to rescue people from sickness and from sin and from death. Indeed, Luke tells us that's why he came, to seek and to save the lost. Except in this case, Jesus never got there. He started out his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. The centurion knew himself better than the Jewish elders did. The centurion had come to understand, by the grace of God, the truth. He was unworthy. All of the good things that he had done did not make him worthy. He knew what was in his heart. And that's where each one of us has to come. We can put on a good show for other people. We can spend a lot of money and do a lot of good things. We can say a lot of nice words. But we know. We know what nobody else knows. We know the thoughts that run through our heads. We know the things that we would say if they were socially acceptable and wouldn't get us fired or disciplined in the church. We know those things that we would give ourselves over to if it wasn't for fear. The centurion knew that. He knew who he was. And he knew that only Jesus could do what he needed. But he also knew that if Jesus was going to do what he needed Jesus to do, it was not going to be because he was worthy. It was going to be by grace. 
I'm not worthy, I'm asking anyway. That's, that's how every one of us has to come before God. Not with our list of credentials, all those things that we think make us worthy, but with nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. I have nothing to offer you, Father. Everything that I could offer you would just cause your wrath to further come upon me. But I'm asking anyway. You come to God like that, you will not be turned away. You come to God like that, and you will live now and forever. Because that is the gospel. See, there's more to salvation than seeing our unworthiness before God. That's merely the first step. We also need to trust in Jesus Christ. The centurion had that as well. He believed that Jesus had the power to save. He says in verses 7 and 8, For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does that. One of the reasons the centurion had this faith is that he knew how authority operates. As an officer in the Roman army, he was used to giving orders and having them obeyed. Because in the Roman army, if you did not obey an order, you didn't just get thrown in the brig. You lost your life. And so they were pretty quick to obey. All he had to do was say the word, and he had soldiers carrying out his commands. He gave similar orders all the time. When he said go, they went. When he said come, they came. When he said make it happen, they made it happen. The centurion was able to give those orders because, as he says, he was a man under authority. Today, we would say that He is a man in authority. But as a Roman soldier, the centurion had a deeper understanding about how authority works. Did you catch that in verse 8? The centurion doesn't say, I have men under my authority. He says, I am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. Why did soldiers carry out his orders? Not because of the person, but because of the authority above their centurion. He had military authority. It came from the command structure in the Roman army. The centurion derived his authority from his superior officers who derived their authority from their superior officers going all the way up the chain to Caesar himself. So when the centurion gave an order, it was backed by the entire Roman Empire. 
It was as if Caesar was giving the order. And somehow the centurion knew that Jesus had the same kind of authority. He may not have known that Jesus was, the, was, was God the Son. Presumably he could not have defined the doctrine of the Trinity. Or explain how the words of the Son were backed by the authority of the Father. But the centurion knew that Jesus had power over the physical human body. As far as he was concerned, the miracles of Jesus proved that he spoke with almighty authority because no one can do what Jesus could do except God. All he had to do was say the word and his wish was creation's command. Quiet down, storm. And the storm was quiet. You see, and those eyes saw. When Jesus heard the confidence the centurion had in the authority of his word, he was amazed. There are only two times in the Gospels when Jesus is said to experience this kind of astonishment. The first is when his family and friends rejected him at Nazareth. The scripture says he marveled because of their unbelief. This time it's not unbelief that amazed him, but belief. Verse 9 says that when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And Luke assures us that when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Jesus didn't have to be there. All he had to do was say one single word and the man's health is restored. It's one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever performed. Didn't even go to the man, just said a word at a distance. But by the time everyone got home, he was healed, fully recovered. And we have to assume, because this is the way every other miracle in Scripture happens, that it didn't take any time to happen. It's not like Jesus commanded him to be healed and then that healing finished happening just as the Jewish elders were arriving back at the home. It happened as soon as Jesus spoke because that's how Jesus heals. J.C. Ryle summarizes by saying a greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Without even seeing the sufferer, without touch of hand or look of eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks, and the sick man is cured. He commands, and the disease departs. And this is salvation. Not granted on the basis of a man's good works or worth or merit, given on the grounds of faith. And the promise that saving healing will take place when someone trusts in Christ has already been given. Jesus has already promised it. And he always keeps his promises. Luke tells us that at the end of his conversation with the centurion's final messenger, Jesus turned and spoke to the crowd. This simple gesture had profound significance for the people standing there that day because it was an 
invitation for them to trust Christ with their very own faith. When Jesus said, not even in Israel have I found such great faith, he was challenging everybody else to put their faith in him. They too had heard about Jesus. Now they also knew he had the power to heal and they were invited to believe in his word. And Jesus turns to us with the same invitation. This story is intended to remind us of our lost and desperate condition as sinners. We are not worthy of Christ either. But the story also shows us that Jesus has the power and desire to save. And anyone who will come to him and lay aside all those things they think make them worthy, recognize that they have nothing to offer Christ except their hopeless sinfulness, then Jesus will save. Because that's the promise. He can give us whatever healing we need, whatever comfort in our grief, whatever forgiveness in our sin, whatever hope for our future. And he gives that to anyone who will trust in Christ as the centurion trusted with simple and confident faith. And there is no one who has ever come like that who has been turned away. Never. And there never will. Because God is a God of grace. Father, thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the example of this centurion, a Gentile, saved by grace, as we all are. Father, should there be anyone hearing my voice this morning or in the future who has not experienced your wonderful Amazing grace. Oh, Father, open their hearts to see who they are. Their need, their unworthiness. And cause them, Father, to see Jesus. The one who meets that need. And draw them, Father, to love your Son. And Father, grant it that we might love him more day by day by day. It's for his sake that we pray, Father. Amen.